Yes. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk-taking. Connect with Carrie through her candid, funny, informative, and always encouraging weekly blog. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Sun Gray. My guest today is the 45th governor of Arkansas, Mickey Dale Beebe, a.k.a. Governor Beebe. Born in a tar paper house in Amagon, Arkansas, Governor Beebe exceeded his poor socioeconomic birthplace to attend Arkansas State University in Jonesboro, make partner to a law firm in Searcy, Arkansas, and in 1982 begin his political career as Arkansas State Senator that would eventually springboard him to the governor's mansion. In the 20 years, Councilor Beebe served as an Arkansas State Senator. He, interestingly, never faced an opponent in his two-decade career. Because of term limiting, in 2002, Beebe left the Senate and was elected Arkansas Attorney General, again with no opponent. He served four years in that position. In 2007, Mr. Mike Beebe became Governor Beebe of Arkansas and served two full terms. In those eight years, he reduced the grocery tax navigated his citizens through the 2009 recession and enacted the Affordable Health Care Act. Governor Mike Beebe is said to be one of, if not the most, popular governor in Arkansas history. Known for his honesty, loyalty, and no-nonsense approach to solving problems and for working across the aisle. He says, and I quote, you can get a lot done if you don't care who gets the credit. This leadership style has served him well making him an effective legislator, deal-maker, and endeared him to the voters and his comrades of both political parties. It is with great pleasure that I welcome to the table the hardworking, popular, pragmatic, retired governor of Arkansas, Mr. Mike Beebe. (laughs) That's a heck of an introduction. Isn't it, though? And all true. Every bit of it is true. Well, Well, I've been blessed. Uh, People have been very good to me. You're very humble. You always give the credit away. That's what I said right in Mm -hmm. the beginning of the show, didn't I? Mm -hmm. I heard Lee Scott, uh, who uh, was a former CEO of Walmart, a heck of a guy, really, really great leader, give a speech one time about leadership. And one of the tenets that I remember the most was what you just said, and, and that is give away all the credit and accept all the blame. And uh, ultimately, it's not as magnanimous as it sounds, because when you give all the credit away to the others, people still know you deserve credit. Uh, so it's not as generous as it sounds. But what it does is it creates loyalty, uh, causes those other folks to work even harder. And uh, when you accept the blame, then uh, the buck stops with you. You can you can privately blame folks, but publicly as, as a leader, you accept it. So it's a, Lee Scott uh, did a great job in that uh, speech, and uh, it's a lesson all of us uh, that, that aspire to leadership uh, need to know. That's exactly right. I love your southern name, Mickey Del Beebe. Not many people know that. I, I, I'm sorry you keep publicizing it. But <laughs> Did your mother call you Mickey Dale? Call me Mickey until probably I was in the sixth grade, uh, and then uh, everybody started saying Mike. Except my grandmother. She never switched. 
Well, I like it. Uh, you were born in Amagon, Arkansas. I'm not even sure where that is. You moved a lot. Tell us about your moving. And before you do, I just want to tell the listeners that out of the state of Arkansas, you lived in Detroit, St. Louis, Chicago, Houston, Almagora, New Mexico. And in the city, and in the state of Arkansas, you lived in Tuckerman, Jonesboro, Little Rock, and Newport, where you graduated high school. Those are the only ones I know. Tell us about moving all the time. First of all, I wasn't born in Amagon. Oh, you weren't? I was born, I was born in the suburb of Amagon. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Amagon has 85 people, and they tell me, in fact, I had a distant cousin that cited where the old shack used to be it's now a rice field but it's about a half a mile uh, north of amigan which is only about uh, eight or ten buildings so uh, i always say i was born in a suburb of amigan <laughs> out the country <clears throat> but now uh my mother had me as a teenager uh she didn't finish high school she was limited in uh what she could do with uh, lack of education she had a great personality and a great work ethic uh, and so she spent her whole life as a waitress, uh, and I was her only child. And we moved around a lot. Uh, as you said, uh, Detroit, Chicago, St. Louis, Festus, Missouri, Crystal City, uh, three places in Florida, Houston, Texas, Alamogordo, New Mexico, uh, Tuckerman, Newport. And then uh, from the ninth grade on, we came back from uh, – we were in Port Walton Beach, Florida, and came back to Newport. Uh, Northeast Arkansas obviously was her her home, and uh, so we came back to Newport. So I went all through high school, stayed four years in Newport, going through high school. It's the longest I'd ever stayed anywhere. And then uh, after graduating from uh, high school, went to ASU. After graduating from uh, ASU, went to Fayetteville uh, Law School, and then came to Searcy straight out of law school, joining uh, a firm here that uh, I was pretty lucky because the three – uh, senior folks uh, that were there when I joined all in- ended up, uh, one retired uh, about six years later. Uh, the other two were elected judges. Uh, and uh, I woke up one morning uh, with a senior partner in a well-established Cersei law firm. That, uh, a lot of luck there. So you went to ASU. Did you, mm-hmm. I, I heard you say or read somewhere that you considered a career in the FBI. Yeah, you know, I've got a friend, I've got several friends who always uh, map out and say that they remember I said I was going to be governor. Um, the truth of the matter is, uh, I went to law school specifically to go in the FBI. That back then, that there were only two routes into the FBI. One was uh, an accounting degree, and I knew that wasn't for me. And the other was a law degree. And so, uh, law school was a prerequisite. And when I went to law school, that was my intention was to go in the FBI. Obviously, your values change as you mature, and uh, throughout the course of uh, the first year of law school, I started to question what I wanted to do, and ultimately uh, decided to go into the practice of law, and that's uh, that's what happened. So you took up practice in Searcy. Why did you pick Searcy? Mm-hmm. Is that just the place you got a job, or did you just love the town? Well, uh, it was a little bit of both. When I graduated, there weren't a lot of jobs. Uh, we had... Uh, we had about 80 people, 75 or 80 people, I think, in a graduating class, which is about normal back then for the law school table. And uh, there uh, weren't a lot of jobs. I, I was editor of the Law Review, so I did have some options. I had three opportunities, and uh, one of them was Cersei, and uh, I had clerked here in the summer. 
between my first and second year of law school and with the very firm that I ended up joining. And so that was a determining factor. It wasn't the salary. The salary that I was offered in Cersei was the worst of the three offers that I had. But uh, the senior partner said, boy, if you're as good as you think you are, you'll be a partner here before uh, you would be anyplace else. And if you're not as good as you think you are, you don't deserve to be a partner anywhere. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, big fish in a little pond. You talked about this freely, so I don't feel like I'm asking out of turn, but your mother married five times, which is why you moved a lot. Yeah, yeah. She was a great person in every aspect of her life except her judgment of men. And uh, <laughs> so uh, I I never knew my dad. I never had a dad, really. Uh, I, I heard who he was, but I never met him. He was never there. And so uh, I had a number of stepdads, some better than others, uh, some worse than others. That precipitated most of those moves. How did all that moving develop your personality, you think? Well, I've always joked that if you're the new kid in class every few months, you better be good at one of three things. Either you better be tough, and I wasn't. You better be able to run fast, and I couldn't. Well, you better learn how to talk. So I suppose I learned how to talk. I suppose it, uh, that helped develop, uh, develop my uh, personality. Well, this is a great place to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with the ever-popular 45th retired Governor Mike Beebe. We'll talk about his 30-year political career, hear some more sage wisdom that he learned while governing, and get some behind-the-scenes stories of Arkansas politics. Stay tuned. We'll be back. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagAndBanner.com. Over 40 years ago, with only $400, Carrie founded Arkansas Flag and Banner. During the last four decades, the business has grown and changed, along with Carrie's experience and leadership knowledge. In 1995, she launched the business website FlagAndBanner.com, became an early blogger in 2004, founded the nonprofit Friends of Dreamland Ballroom in 2009, began distributing a biannual publication called Brave Magazine in 2014, and today she's branched out into this very radio show, YouTube channel, and podcasts, where each week you'll hear her engage in candid conversations with engaging persons. Stay informed about upcoming guests by subscribing to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy's YouTube channel. For updates of happenings on the busy Flag and Banner campus, like Dreamland Ballroom events, current Up In Your Business guests, sales at flagandbanner.com, relevant Brave Magazine articles, and Carrie's weekly blog post, join our email list at flagandbanner.com and receive our Thursday, very popular, all-inclusive, water-cooler weekly update, telling American-made stories, selling American-made flags, the flagandbanner.com. Back to you, Carrie. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Arkansas's popular and pragmatic retired 45th Governor Mike Beebe. Before the break, we talked about Governor Beebe's humble beginnings. We talked about his wonderful personality and how it came from having to be so (laughs) versatile and why everybody likes him because he had to be liked at every school he ever went to. And that's why he's the most popular guy. Governor Beebe, you now have a successful career as an attorney and partner in the Lytle Beebe Law Firm in Searcy, Arkansas, that we just talked about before the break. It was 1982, and you decided to run for the Arkansas State Senate. Why would you make that change? 
Well, uh, I'd always been interested in politics uh, after I got out of law school and after I had changed my uh, course in life. Uh, we had a senior partner, Ed Lytle, who uh, had been a state senator for eight years and uh, had decided that eight years was all he wanted, so he retired uh, after eight years. That was unusual at the time. And that had been several years before. And uh, so he he piqued my interest a little bit. Then, uh, for reasons nobody ever understood, back in 1974, when I was two years out of law school, I didn't have any money, didn't know anything about politics, but I campaigned for, uh, and out of the clear blue, Dale Bumpers appointed me to the ASU board. Uh, I was just a baby, and I looked even younger. I used to have to wear glasses with no prescription once in a while, so people would think I was older. So my five years on the ASU board further triggered my interest in, in politics and, and uh, government and public policy. And so uh, I was searching around uh, for uh, opportunity, and uh, redistricting occurred in 82. Uh, we had been in with Bill Walmsley as, as our senator from baseball, but Cersei had grown so much. In redistricting, Walmsley wanted a shed of uh, Cersei because he kept getting an opponent out of Cersei. He kept winning, but he kept getting an opponent. So they created uh, in redistricting a district that threw Cersei in with Stuttgart and DeWitt, had an uh, incumbent uh, named Mr. Bill Hargrove. And uh, so I decided to run. And uh, so I started running in uh, 81, like in July of 81. And uh, when it came filing time in 82, he came to see me, wanted me uh, not to run against him. I said he probably only wanted four more years. He was a nice gentleman. I said, Mr. Bill, I'm going to run. And a few weeks later, he dropped out. Uh, Actually, he never filed. Uh, So when the filing time came, I filed, and I was the only one, and the rest is kind of history. Why did he think ask you not to run? Did he think you'd beat him? You were a brand-new guy. Yeah, but Cersei was bigger than Stuttgart and growing. And so uh, geographically, the district had, uh, uh, in terms of hometown folks, uh, favored me, even though I was brand new, young, and and, uh, inexperienced. And I suppose suppose that was a factor. I'm not sure, but... uh, You remarkably served unopposed for 20 years. You have to be a little bit lucky for something like that to happen. But, uh, you know, I campaigned every day. I never had an opponent, but uh, I always thought that uh, you don't just campaign during campaign season. Now, it wasn't a formal and official campaign. We weren't raising money or any of that stuff. But I was out in the district, you know. I, I had a law practice that had evolved where I was uh, the senior partner, and I had big cases. So I didn't have lots of cases, but the cases I had were – were pretty huge. It afforded me extra time. And so I spent uh, several hours a week uh, traveling in the district, seeing people, uh, listening to their concerns, trying to be responsive, doing constituent services. And, uh, you know, that paid off. And so as time went on, uh, that grew and grew, and and consequently, uh, nobody ever decided to run. Then when I got ready to run for attorney general, there were, I think, seven people counting myself on both sides of the aisle talking about uh, running for AG. Ultimately, nobody ever filed except me. And so I was elected uh, AG without an opponent, which I don't think has ever happened, or if it has, I I don't remember it. But uh, in any event, uh, when I ran for governor, uh, some of the political pundits, particularly John Brummett, 
said I didn't know how to campaign, never had a campaign, didn't know how to raise money, didn't know how to debate, you know. Uh, Except for you campaigned every day, 365 yeah, days a year, which it sounds like your opponents just didn't want to work that hard. <laughs> well, it, it, I enjoyed it. Uh, so it wasn't much work. You know, I, I like people, and uh, uh, I enjoyed the Senate. I never thought I'd enjoy anything more than the Senate. Yeah, you were term uh, limited. Right. Either had to get – Senate was a – state Senate was as high as you could go and still be part-time so you could have a real job and a real life outside of politics. So I had to make a decision with term limits to get, get in or get out. Uh, there was no other place to go. And so, obviously, I decided to uh, uh, quit the law practice and get in full-time to uh, elected well, office. Well, you had to take a cut in pay. Oh, yeah. No question about it. But I've been fortunate. You know, uh, I'd had a number of good cases, including uh, I had the largest jury verdict in the history of Arkansas in, in 81 uh, before I ran. And uh, then uh, subsequently, in four or five years later, uh, I had one that even broke that record. I called my wife after that case, and I said, I got good news and bad news. She said, well, what's the bad news? I said, my record's broken. She said, what's the good news? I said, I broke it. <laughs> so, uh, so when you win a big case like that for the state, you don't get any of that money, do you? Right. You win cases as AG. That, all that money goes to the state. Was the chicken house case your law practice, or was that for the, or was that for the state? No, that was mine. Uh, that was the first one. What was the well, second one called? The second one was uh, a terrible accident involving a uh, 14-year-old oh. junior high cheerleader and her grandmother that was just atrocious oh. in a big, big truck. One was a products case. One was a negligence case. What was motivating you to stay in politics instead of going back into private practice in Searcy after your Senate? I'd done all I needed to do in the practice of law, and I really enjoyed uh, the public service and uh, the politics of it. And uh, so uh, what motivated me, I suppose, was a different challenge. I'd practiced law for 30 years. 20 of those years I was in the Senate. But uh, as I said, that's a part-time job, so I could have a real job. So I continued in the practice of law for 30 years. I'd been there, done that, and uh, decided to do something different. Well, I certainly understand that. Tell us how the decision to run for the governor came about. You ran against Asa Hutchinson and during a debate had a pretty defining moment when you said, I want to promise less and deliver more to the Arkansas people. What uh, I suppose prompted it was uh, it was an open seat. Uh, Huckabee was term limited, and uh, so he was gone. So it was an opportunity, and uh, it's a natural progression. Uh, a lot of AGs run for and get elected governor. I'd had a statewide uh, constituency and base uh, from the time that I was AG, and uh, name recognition had gone up significantly. So I thought I had a chance. In the course of it, you know, through my 20 years in the Senate, I'd found that uh, telling people the truth actually was not just good public policy. It was really good politics, too. Even though you made some people mad, and even though you told them stuff they didn't want to hear, the majority of them, not all of them, but the majority of them actually rewarded you for being honest. So it was kind of a mantra with me that uh, I just told it like it was, and ultimately that that was good politics as well as good government. It was a natural thing to say when people started pandering about what all they were going to do uh, for me to say, look, I'd rather uh, under-promise and over-deliver rather than go the other way around. I think people reward you for it. And ultimately, that's what happened. 
not long after you were elected in 2008, the banking crisis occurred. What did you think? Oh, my gosh, just my luck. Yeah, well, you know, you didn't have much time to think about it. Uh, the uh, I had a good year in 2007 because I was elected in 06 and took office in 07, and we were doing quite well. We actually had a surplus, and we were able to do things that got us out of or headed down the road to get us out of court from uh, all the school stuff that we dealt with for 20-something years that I dealt with in the, in the Senate. Uh, and we were able to uh, fund public schools and, and facilities in a way that uh, headed us uh, away from court and back into local folks being able to run schools. And as a result of that, uh, I was pretty happy. And as you mentioned, bam, in 08, the big Wall Street bank torpedoed, and it torpedoed the country into a recession that uh, lasted all through 08 and uh, into parts of 09. And uh, but I was proud of the fact that with uh, the, you know I'd been in the Senate, I'd been on budget, I knew how revenue stabilization was supposed to work, I knew what conservative. I'm a social liberal and a fiscal conservative. Uh, I don't care what your religion is or what church you go to or who you like or who you don't like, but I don't want you spending money that's not there, and I don't want you wasting my money or anybody else's money. And so we were conservative in our budgeting, and we were able to cut uh, with the Revenue Stabilization Act and periodically as it went through so that we were one of four states that never really got in trouble fiscally uh, throughout the recession. And the other three states didn't have any people. So they had more animals like uh, uh, North Dakota, Montana, and Alaska. Uh, so we were we were fortunate that uh, that we got through that crisis with a minimum of uh, problems. We didn't go into debt like uh, a lot of states did. We didn't steal from uh, retirement funds just to make uh, the budget work. So uh, it was tough, and there was some pain throughout it. But uh, we got when we came out of it, we came out of it much better than the rest of the country. What do you think about the the recession we're in now? Do you do you think about what you would do different than what's going on? I have great sympathy. I I told Asa that uh, I know how lonely it is where he sits uh, in the middle of a crisis, and uh, so I told him it was lonesome uh, when you're having to make those decisions uh, as a governor uh, during a crisis. And if you ever just needed to talk, uh, I was here, and uh, so we we've developed. A, Notwithstanding the fact we ran against each other in 06, we developed a pretty good relationship. You were really known for balancing the budget. It was really important to you. Like you said, you're a social liberal and a fiscal conservative. When the Forestry Commission fell short, you audited them in your second term. Yeah, that uh, we ended up making some changes. You're always going to have problems. You can't keep your finger on you know, state government's too big. You can't keep your finger on everything in advance all the time. And sometimes some of these things... Uh, uh, reach up and bite you. All you can do in cir- circumstances uh, when those things occur is to take uh, decisive action to eradicate the problem, to fix the problem. Uh, that was just one example. We we had a number of examples, most of which I've forgotten, but uh, mm-hmm. a number of examples where, you know, you, you, you have ups and downs and you have problems in the agencies and you have to react and you have to react decisively. And so that was an, an example of one that, uh, that ultimately worked out. Back to current events, you were also really, really a proponent of schools and really cleaning up the school system. Your mother was big on education because, she, like you said, she didn't graduate high school and she felt limited. 
What do you think about the STEM schools, or do you have an opinion about STEM schools and the way they're rearranging the public school system in Little Rock? You're talking about charter schools? Charter schools, uh-huh. I have always been opposed to private or charter schools that weren't open enrollment getting state funds. That's, that's, a, that's a different matter. But I've always been supportive of open enrollment public charter schools. And there's a difference. An open enrollment school is usually one where anybody, any of the public school students, regardless of their uh, financial ability, uh, have the opportunity to go to that charter school. And uh, in cases where they have a limited number, then they do it by lottery, which is also fair. So that you're not just taking rich kids, you're getting every kid has the opportunity to be able to uh, at least have a chance to go to the open enrollment public charter schools and them getting state money is something that I'm supportive of. You can't have an open enrollment public uh, charter school in a district that so adversely impacts the student population of the public school in that district that it ruins the public school. I think that is what's happening. Is that what the problem is now? They're closing the small neighborhood schools. It can be a problem. Uh, In Little Rock, I don't know that it's gotten to that point yet because they do have a significant population that uh, is able to feed. But let me explain. Under our Supreme Court orders and the way they uh, forced us to fund public schools in a different fashion, you have to have a certain number of kids because we're paying by the kid or else you can't have the curriculum necessary. You can't have chemistry or physics or mm-hmm. some of those harder to find teachers if you don't have enough students. So if you have a small town or a small school district and somebody opens a, uh, an open enrollment public uh, charter school, you can actually take enough kids away from the regular public school that they can't function. You can't allow that. Those kind of open enrollment public charter schools cannot be permitted. Now, that's all different from private schools. Right. Private schools, are, they don't get state money. You know, if somebody wants to go to a private school, that's that's a different measure. The state can impose requirements on, on those uh, private schools in terms of curricular requirements and stuff like that, but uh, they're not funding them. So uh, what we're talking about is the public charter schools. Before we go to break, you're known for cutting the middle class taxes. You reduced the state's grocery tax by half. You increased the homestead property tax. Your education reform was really important to you. You did a lot for special needs students, expanded Medicaid. Anything about those that you're really proud of that you want to mention? Yeah, but I got to correct you on one thing. I eliminated the grocery tax. So we cut it in half the first year, then we chipped away at it. And when I, my last year in office, we still had one and seven-eighths. Now, there's one-eighth that we couldn't take off because it was part of what was passed by the people in the Constitutional Amendment for the, uh, all that game and fish stuff and everything else. And, and so that one-eighth, we couldn't do anything about. But we went from 6% down to one-eighth, so I got rid of all of it I could get rid of. However, it wasn't gone when I left office, so what I had to do, and we had to pay for getting rid of the grocery tax, and the way we did it, was the last one and seven-eighths that was on the books when I left office. We passed a law that said uh, that's gone in 2018 when we quit paying DSEG money to Little Rock schools. There was gonna, when we quit paying, when the state quit paying what we were paying to Little Rock schools under that court order, that extra money for desegregation, that was already scheduled to end per court order in 2018. So I convinced the legislature that when that ends in 2018, automatically that last one and seven eighths would come off. And it did. 
So uh, that law was passed in 2013 before I left office in 2014 or 2015, actually. And so it was already in place and automatically got rid of the rest of the grocery tax uh, in 2018. Good job. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Arkansas's popular and pragmatic retired 45th governor, Mike Beebe. In your second term, governor... You became the first Democratic governor since 1874 to face a Republican-controlled legislature in both houses. But this did not stop you from getting things done. One of your biggest achievements during your second term was you signed into law the private option, part of the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. What does that mean, and why was it important? Well, it meant a great deal uh, for a lot of different constituencies. And there were a number of arguments that we used uh, to get it done. And uh, all were true, but different arguments were more appealing to different constituencies. For example, you had the obvious argument that uh, 250,000 Arkansans were now going to be able to have health care. But that wasn't sufficient for a lot of folks because they – uh, Arkansans in the General Assembly uh, did not like Obamacare. Obamacare was unpopular because Obama was unpopular. The Tea Party was uh, was big at the time, and uh, the Affordable Care Act had provisions in it that uh, mandated certain uh, requirements on insurance that were and that was unpopular with some people. But the truth of the matter was, it was more complicated. That in Arkansas, because under our Constitution, and we couldn't change this because it's constitutional. The people would have had to change it with constitutional amendment. It took three-fourths votes for this, three-fourths in both houses. That's 75 out of 100 in the House, 27 out of 35 in the Senate. And and the the fact of the matter is you can't get three-fourths for motherhood and apple pie most of the time. But there were, there were uh, plenty of other good reasons. First of all, the... Expansion of Medicaid, which uh, we turned into the private option, uh, but it was still the expansion of Medicaid, was the one thing the U.S. Supreme Court said was optional uh, when, they, when, when Obamacare came in front of the Supreme Court. So states could take it or not take it. And uh, most of the southern states and certainly all the Republican states said no, they weren't going to take it. Well, one of the arguments is, look, we're paying for this whether we take it or not. It's, cut, it's being paid for in a couple of ways. All our taxes are paying for part of it. And what the feds did was they said, if we're going to expand Medicaid so that you don't have more uninsured for hospitals, since hospitals are going to get more money because now they've got more people insured, we're going to cut Medicare reimbursements. Now, they're not cutting Medicare, but they're going to cut Medicare reimbursement rates for hospitals because now hospitals are going to get more insured so they don't have as many uninsured, so they don't need as much money in reimbursements for Medicare. So whether we take it or not, we're going to pay for it. Our hospitals are going to pay for it. Our taxpayers are going to pay for it. And so one of my arguments was, do you want our taxpayers to be sending all this money to California and New York so that they can have more insured? And leave our people out? Well, that appealed to a lot of folks, obviously. I mean, that's just logic. Another argument was what it was going to do to our hospitals if we didn't take it. For example, I said they're cutting Medicare reimbursement rates. It was $58 million that first year just to UAMS alone in terms of losses if we didn't take, uh, if we didn't take, uh, uh, if we didn't do the private option. The other thing was Obama needed a southern state. 
and uh, and no, no southern state was doing it. So we convinced them with the Republicans. Now I got to give people like Jonathan Dismang, Republican state senator from here in Cersei, who's turned out to be a wonderful state senator, incidentally. Uh, David Sanders, uh, John Burris over in the House, uh, they helped lead. Uh, a contingent and help formulate the private option where instead of just expanding Medicaid, we took the money and the requirements that would have been applicable under Medicaid and bought insurance with it. And it did a couple of things. Number one, it increased the number of insurance companies providing health care in Arkansas, creating more competition, which helped our rates. And in addition to that, it, it allowed us to be able to have a pool of money because we already had an insurance premium tax on the books. We didn't have to raise it. We didn't have to raise taxes. It was already there from years and years and years ago. So it created a pool of money with all this by, by buying insurance instead of just straight Medicaid. It created a pool of money uh, that allowed us to help defray the state's costs going forward without ever having to raise another dime in taxes because it created more tax money in an already existing tax on hospital insurance premiums. Hospitals were happy with it because they were going to get killed uh, without, uh, and it would have closed a lot of smaller hospitals and rural hospitals. You still had some ideological opposition with uh, Tea Party folks uh, and extreme, uh, extremely conservative uh, uh, Republicans that didn't want to go along. Now, most Republican governors have, have awakened, and uh, they followed our lead. So now we have, uh, I guess, 40-something states that do it. But you've still got eight or ten states uh, that are doing the very uh, – Mississippi, I don't think, has ever taken it. Alabama, I don't think, has ever taken it. So did people so, call you and ask you your opinion? That yeah, was a lot of moving yeah. parts that you just said. So did they call you up and ask you every one of those, and you kind of taught everybody? Yeah. Uh, the first one to call was Gary Herbert. Republican governor of Utah, which is really strange. Utah's pretty conservative. And he said, you know, uh, how'd you do this? And so walked him through it, and uh, so Utah ended up doing it. And uh, I never will forget the, the Republican governor of Tennessee called. He couldn't get it done, but he tried. Uh, his legislature actually would not expand Medicaid. I, I, and I don't think Tennessee has expanded Medicaid to this day. Uh, he certainly tried. Why do people sometimes say that you didn't pass a lot of legislature in your name? Instead, you got it done by caring more about the greater good and kind of gave the credit away. It sounds to me like you did a lot of stuff in your name. Well, yeah, when I was governor, uh, that, uh, that description was more applicable when I was in the Senate, where... Uh, I often describe myself as more of the traffic cop, making sure that it all ran right and uh, it got passed, uh, because I did not file a lot of bills. Uh, I filed a lot of major ones, uh, some constitutional amendments, and shepherded the school uh, finance uh, reform and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of sheer quantity of bills, sheer numbers, uh, I didn't do a lot of that. But, you know, for the last 10 or 12 years I was in the Senate, I was running it, and uh it, it 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 was more effective for me to help other people shepherd their stuff through or kill what needed to be killed. You know, some of the best work we ever did was to kill bad stuff, not just pass good stuff. And so that uh, description of uh, me not passing a lot of legislation in my name was probably applicable and appropriate, but it was for my time in the Senate. As governor, you have to go out there and and put your stamp on them on more stuff and so the uh 
the description was applicable to the to the Senate time, not to the governor's time. In your PBS documentary that I watched, and if anybody hasn't watched it, they need to go watch it. It's great. Well done. Representative Jay Bradford called you Atlanta. And when asked <laughs> <That> was, why, <laughs> yeah. go ahead and tell our listeners why he called you Atlanta. Well, he, uh, Jay Bradford, uh, when we were in the Senate, Senate uh, oh, I guess in about 99 or 2000, somewhere along in there, he started calling me Atlanta, and the press asked him why he called me in, in Atlanta. And he said, because everything, he was referring to Delta Airlines, I think. He said, because everything has to go through Atlanta. And uh, <laughs> so that's, that's how that name got there. Jay Bradford coined that. He, he thought he was pretty clever. He was. I like it. <laughs> uh, the PBS documentary was produced and directed by the husband and wife team, Catherine Tucker and Gabe Mahan. It's titled Let BBBBB. Tell us the story behind that slogan. Oh, yeah. Uh, our dear, long-departed friend, Matt DeCampo, who we stole when I was AG from uh, KTV Channel 7. He was a reporter. And uh, we brought him on as our press secretary in the attorney general's office and obviously took him with me to the governor's office. Well, when I'm running for governor in 06, we had a series of mistakes. We had uh, some weeks where early on in the campaign we'd made mistakes and and uh, got some bad press. I can't even remember what all the subject matter was, but it wasn't going the way you really wanted it to go. And uh, Matt was a great press secretary who would have been terrible in the campaign, so I didn't take him with me to the campaign office. He stayed in the AG's office while I was running for governor. So uh, one afternoon after a few weeks of this, he calls and he says, uh, uh, let's go have a beer at the Oyster Bar about 5 o'clock this afternoon. And I said, all right. We, I was a little bit down. And he said, look, you got all these people trying to handle you. you got folks telling you what you ought to say and how you ought to say it. You, you don't need handlers. You just need to let BBBBB. Just be yourself was was his advice. And from that point on, we never looked back. It, uh, the mistakes went away. Everything got on a roll. And... Uh, his advice about let BBBBB was uh, made you the most popular governor of Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> he was right. He was. I always think of the wives of politicians. Uh, looking back, can you speak to your wife, Ginger's support, <laughs> sacrifice, and strength? Yeah, there's a great story behind this. Uh, a very funny story. You know, she's a great lady, uh, but she never really was involved in politics. For example, since I never had an opponent. She didn't have to be, okay? And as a state senator, there wasn't. There were occasions when uh, she would be involved uh, at some function, but uh, but they were pretty rare, and they they weren't uh, they weren't very difficult. Uh, and then when I had uh, when I ran for AG, uh, I also didn't have an opponent. So she had, she was busy home raising kids and and taking care of the house. Well, when I was elected AG, we bought a condominium in Lovell. So I didn't have to drive back and forth every day to Cersei. I'd just come home on the weekends and uh, stayed in Little Rock during the week. So fast forward, I'm elected governor. We don't need the condominium because we're going to move into mansion. So we sold it. And uh, so we're having a brunch uh, the day before the inauguration. Volunteers and uh, campaign staff that worked so hard. And I get a phone call. Ginger's at the condominium packing up stuff. At this brunch, he said, "You need to get over here right away." Ginger's in the floor crying, and I said, "Well, gosh!" So the enormity of what was about to happen in changing her life as first lady had obviously hit her. So I jumped in the car, left the 
left Trotton Hall, drove to the condominium, and uh, looked at her. And I said, now, you know this is coming. I said, why now? Why are you so upset? And she looked at me and she said, I didn't think you'd win. (laughs) Oh, the nice vote of confidence from your wife. (laughs) (laughs) She'll she'll bring you home. Yeah, she will. (laughs) you know, you're talking about being popular. She may be as popular as anybody's ever sat in that uh, in that first lady's seat because she opened that mansion up. She thought it was a people's house. Uh, she was caring and kind. And uh, I never will forget she did a, a listening tour uh, for several months about children and uh, foster children and uh, children's services or lack thereof. And so they'd go around the state to different towns, Monticello or Magnolia or Jonesboro or lots of different places. And the first part would be including the media so that they were publicizing the needs, you know, and what was going on. And the second half of the day would be just parents, uh, usually just mamas talking about the problems that they were having, uh, accessing services for their children. Usually it was very poor people. And uh, so one day, one day she came in and uh, she said this African-American lady had uh, said to her uh, at, the, at the end of their discussion, said, you are going to do something about this, aren't you? And so uh, she came back to the mansion that night. She said, uh, she told me the story and she said, now you are going to do something about this, aren't you? <laughs> so the next morning I called the head of uh, John Selig, the head of uh, uh, Human Services, and I said, you are going to do something about this, aren't you? So, uh, I mean, there are a lot of those little anecdotes, but she ended up being extraordinarily popular. And, you know, she she always had class and grace way beyond uh, what I could understand. So this is another great place to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Arkansas's retired Governor Mike Beebe, attorney at law, who also served 20 years in the Arkansas Senate and four years as attorney general. We'll be right back. Long before Beyonce sang this song to the Obamas at the inaugural ball, Etta James sang it on the Dreamland Ballroom stage. Located on the top floor of the FlagandBanner.com building in downtown Little Rock, there lies a historical treasure called the Dreamland Ballroom, where musical greats like Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, and Etta James once played. Thirty years ago, this magnificent venue was destined for the wrecking ball. But since 2009, the nonprofit Friends of Dreamland has worked to restore this piece of Arkansas heritage. They've made it their mission to bring back its history and culture by providing tours, artistic performances, musical education, and cultural outreach. As you walk to the entrance of Dreamland, you'll notice the paver bricks that are engraved with commemorative names and phrases chosen by donors to Dreamland. The Pave the Way fundraiser is an ongoing project of the nonprofit Friends of Dreamland. Paver bricks are available for you to be a part of this restoration project. Visit dreamlandballroom.org to find out how you can contribute. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Arkansas's retired Governor Mike Beebe, who served between 2007 and 2015. Governor Beebe, your approval rating never slipped below 70% in all your years as governor. Your crossover appeal had to make you a much-talked-about candidate for the presidential elections. Did you consider it? No, uh, and and I never considered a Senate race. Uh, You know, the progression had always been Congress, Governor, Senate. 
and there was some pressure for me to run for the Senate. Uh, in fact, there was a poll that I think the U of A did uh, that uh, came out like in October uh, before I left office that had me a, as a 14, with a 14-point lead over the incumbent senator. Uh, but I never had a desire to go to Washington. I did when I was young, didn't know any better, but it had gotten so poisonous up there. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd done I, – I don't know that there was a better job politically in the world than being governor. And uh, so I, I was ready to come home. Uh, I was ready to relax a little bit. And uh, uh, so I, I never considered that. Interestingly enough, I don't know where these people come up with this stuff, but there's a deal on YouTube that uh, somebody had put on there. I've never been able to figure out who it was. It's well done. It looks like a real Fox News uh, election night because uh, they advertise Fox News, but it could have been any um, network election night. Uh, with me and Trump in 2020, and then they mm -hmm. go through each state, and then, I mean it's pretty realistic how the polls are now closed in state X and state Y. And uh, if you went to YouTube and you hit my name, then there's 50 jillion entries, but one of them is me and Trump, and uh, <laughs> you walk through it, and uh, it's like a real election night. Funny. So what do you think about politics today? You were right about it. It's gotten to be dirty politics. It's sad that we've gotten so polarized. Uh, and I'm, I'm talking about both parties, extreme left and the extreme right. And uh, part of it's the legislature's fault and not, not our, just Arkansas legislature, all 50 state legislatures. And the reason I say that is what happens with the decennial census every 10 years when we do a census, congressional House districts are redistricted, but they're redistricted by the state legislatures. So, for example, Arkansas State Legislature redistricts our congressional uh, boundary lines. And what these legislatures have done across this country is created real safe Democratic seats and real safe Republican seats so that there's not much in the middle. So that when these people are running for, for the House, they're uh, in Washington. Uh, they're not worried about the November election. They're going. They're either going to be a Republican because it's a Republican uh, skewed district, or they're going to be a Democrat because it's a Democratic skewed district. So when they're running, they're afraid of their own people in their own primary. So Republicans run farther to the right. The Democrats run farther to the left. And when they get elected, there has not been anything in the middle. There's not been any desire to run toward the middle. So there's no way to want to cross over and work with the, with the other party. And it's polarized to the point they don't even talk to each other. They don't like each other. They don't get along with each other. You think the pendulum will swing back the old way? Ultimately, yeah. ultimately, the beauty of this country is people are boss. When they get tired enough of this extreme partisanship, they'll start voting for folks that uh, don't exhibit that extreme partisanship. I'm an eternal optimist, and I have faith in the American electorate. And I think ultimately, when they get peed off enough about it, they'll demand change. Last question. Now that you're no longer running for office, we can talk candidly about anything, I think. I read where you said you'd done more than 700 pardons of mostly nonviolent offenders. And thank goodness, in 2014, you pardoned your son from a 2003 felony drug possession conviction. Your son did nine years, I think, for marijuana that is now legal. And I imagine you learned a lot during that time. He got more punishment than he would have gotten if he'd not been my son. 
Yes. Uh, and uh, they didn't send him to jail or to prison because they weren't sending first offender marijuana folks. But they put him on uh, probation for, what, three years or something like that. I had granted all those. I, I, I rarely granted computa- commutations. Uh, very rare, uh, shortening people's sentence. But I was real liberal about granting uh, pardons for folks that had already completed their sentence or their probation and paid their fines and whatever they're supposed to do if if some period of time had elapsed and they hadn't reoffended. Because I, particularly nonviolent and particularly young people that were convicted of drugs, because I thought they deserve a second chance. So I, I'm now faced with a lot of criticism for doing that for my son when I did it for everybody else. Why would I treat him worse? Uh, I can understand not treating him better. He deserved what everybody else deserved. That's right. And a lot of people raised Cain about it, but uh, I wasn't going to treat him worse than everybody else. And and one of the most heart-wrenching things that happened to me was a lady drove 100 miles at an event one night where I was speaking out in the open in the cold when Arkadelphia had done their uh, scholarship deal, much like El Laredo had done. And it was so big, so many people there, they had to do it outside on the football field. And it was cold winter time, and I already had a cold. And I, of course, everybody had to speak, and I'm the last to speak. And so I'm ready to get back to the car. And so I'm walking back to the car, and uh, this lady's wrapped up, and she'd been standing there throughout that cold young young woman. And she said she drove a hundred miles to thank me for her husband, who couldn't get off work. He was working, uh, supporting the family, but wanted to thank me for his pardon. You know that you never forget that. That just almost brings tears to my eyes. That's a wonderful story. Has it been hard to let go? No, uh, it's been hard to let go of the people. Uh, You know, I love the job. Uh, You know, I I don't remember bad days. I'm sure I had bad days. You remember mostly the good days. But I don't miss all that. But what I do miss and, and what is hard to let go are the huge number of people, not just your staff, not just the troopers who become part of your family, but the friends, the supporters, uh, the folks that you used to see once or twice a week or three, three or four times a month. Now you may not even see see them all year. That's what I miss. And you don't get to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I was in the Senate, the most enjoyable time I had was constituency work, when you knocked a wall down to get somebody something they deserve. Now, about half the time, people are asking for stuff they didn't deserve, and you have to be able to, to winnow those out, you know, people asking for stuff that was ridiculous or that wasn't appropriate. But about half the time, they were folks that were just caught up in a system that nobody was listening to them. And, uh, you know, being able to pick the phone up and, and call an agency head or call a department or call somebody and and get relief for somebody that truly deserved it was probably the most remo- rewarding part of being uh, being a senator. And working together in groups to, to solve problems mm-hmm. and to get things mm-hmm. done is just so gratifying. I think if I ever quit working, that's the part I would miss the most. Thank you, Governor, for all your service. It's, oh, it's my pleasure. For all you've done uh, for all you. of us, for being smart, figuring out all that Medicare, Medicaid. <laughs> Affordable Care Act, that was complex. No kidding. That was good, though. That was really, really good. Thanks for being a great example. Appreciate it. You're welcome. In closing, thank you for spending time with us. We hope you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening, and that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave.
and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guest. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Stay informed of exciting upcoming guests by subscribing to our YouTube channel or podcast wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream.